John chapter 3. Good morning, good to see you. I know it's holiday weekend, but I'm glad you're here today. Water is a dominant theme in the Gospel of John. There are seven different instances. I won't list them all, but they are um, all through it. We will, we've already seen one of those when Christ turned the water into wine. He will talk about water again today, but there are more detailed instances. There are seven of them uh, in John's Gospel. We will see the first of, of uh, seven long teachings, conversations that Jesus has in John's Gospel. Uh, the longest one, or the first of the long ones, uh, starts here in John chapter 3 today uh, with a man named uh, Nicodemus. In chapter 4, when we get there, he has this long conversation uh, with a woman at the well. And so there are a series of sevens all running through the Gospel of John. Uh, one of those is water, um, seven long conversations. And over the next several months, in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, we will see two of these great conversations that Jesus had. So today we see with a religious leader. He is well-respected. He is connected. Um, we will see it when we get to John chapter 4 in someone, a woman at a well, who's not respected. Um, she's actually an outcast, and Jesus, with both of them, um, offers them and explains to them what it looks like to have a relationship with them and offers the well-connected and the not-well-connected, uh, both of them, a chance to come into a relationship. I know that you have done this before, um, I've done it before, and so let's just be honest. You ever been somewhere at a restaurant, and you hear a conversation happening at another table, and you're tempted to eavesdrop a little bit, and today we're going to eavesdrop, okay? We're going to eavesdrop on a conversation, and it's a good conversation, to hear what Jesus and a man named Nicodemus are talking about. And these things today are really important for us, and so that's why we want to listen in today and see what Christ has to say to him as this uh, begins. So, one last thing before we read the text. Um, probably 30 years ago, there was a, um, a thinking that began to be established in the church here in America where uh, there were conferences that were held. And, and one of the things that kind of came out of this, this church growth movement was... Uh, this teaching and this idea that there are certain words connected to our faith, um, that the world out there that's moved on from God, they don't understand them, and so we need to not use them anymore, even though they're in the Bible and even though they're important things. And so for a number of years, um, we kind of left those behind. Instead of using those words, we kind of got creative, and, and I'm all for explaining things. We need to always explain things. But there are some words that are really rich to our Christian heritage that I think we've lost um, for several decades. Um, and John chapter 3 talks about those, and, and we're going to bring them back again. If you're new to Christianity and you're in a room today, every segment of society has a language, does it not? If you're in the technology world, um, there's a language that those people speak, and I can be in that group. And it just goes above me. I'm not really interested in it. I, it's fascinating. Um, there is there's lingo for you for those of you who are school teachers. There's a language that's there to talk about you know what you do. For those of you who are engineers, you got engineer talk. Well, the church has church talk, and there's nothing wrong with it because it's scriptural talk. And so I, I I'm excited about John chapter three and that we're going to talk about a word that was one of those words they said don't use anymore, and it's a word called born again. And it is such, has such rich value 
um, to our Christian heritage, and, and, and it should be a part of our language. It should be something that we talk about. And, and so we're also going to talk in John chapter 3 about the word being saved and, and being born again and, and the bride and the bridegroom. And this old language um, needs to become a new language for us again uh, to, to, to use those words. And so, all right, so look with me, John chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to go down to verse 6. Uh, on Monday, I outlined this. We're going to spend eight weeks in John chapter 8, or John chapter 3, eight weeks in John chapter 3, and so we got 19 more chapters to go, and as I said, about three years from now, I think we'll be done, maybe, um, with this, but but we'll, uh, we're going to spend about eight weeks in John 3, because there's so many important things for us to see. All right, John 3, 1 through 6. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, let's stop there just for a moment so we can kind of put things in context. So Jesus had gone into uh, Jerusalem at the Passover. He had turned over the money changers. He had chased out uh, the animals that were being sold in the, in the court of the Gentiles. And then he spent six or seven days at that Passover healing people. And so Nicodemus is referring to the teaching of Jesus and the healing, the signs that he did. So let's read, let's read two again. So this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, um, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. All right, let's walk through this. Verse 1, let's, let's talk about this. So there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And I want to talk just for a moment and kind of set the stage for um, the kind of people that Jesus often encountered in the Gospels. You read the entire Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, entire account, um, and you see the personal encounters Jesus had, the type of people who approached him. Most of the relationships and most of the encounters that Jesus had, for the most part, he spent the majority of his time with the common people of the day. As a matter of fact, the most positive thing that Jesus said about anybody in his three years of ministry, he didn't say it about a Jewish person. So I tested the first service this morning, so I'm going to test you as well. Who was Jesus? Most, one person he was most astounded with in regard to their faith in the four Gospels. Does anybody remember who that was? Is a Roman centurion. So there's a Roman centurion um, who came to Jesus and he said, Hey, you don't need to come. You can just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, when he heard that, he said this in Matthew 8. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he turned to all those that were with him, and he said to them who followed him, Truly I tell you, with nobody in Israel have I found such faith as what I have seen today from the Roman centurion. And so of all the people, even the disciples, Jesus was astounded with this Roman centurion. And so let's talk about the 12 just for a moment and because Jesus spent the majority of his time with the 12. So were they of the religious elite, the 12? Well, we know at least 11 of them 
were just common people. Now, there's a possibility that one of the twelve was connected to at least the tribe of Levi, which the priest came from, and that would be Matthew. Now, Matthew was also called Levi, so there's a possibility that because his name was Levi, he may have been not obviously a priest because he was a Jewish tax collector, but he may have been connected to that tribe. But for even of the twelve, Jesus, under the, under the leadership of the Father, he chose twelve men that for the most part were just among the commoners of the day. When you look at the four Gospels, um, we know this, that Jesus had lots of issues with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, had lots of issues with them. John the Baptist got in on it as well. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, John called the Pharisees and the religious leaders, if you remember, a brood of vipers. Okay, that's not cultivating loving relationships there. John the Baptist called them out about that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that all of our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees because it was a shallow righteousness. It was not a deep righteousness. In Matthew 9, they questioned Jesus why he hung out with sinners. Why did he, why did he hang out with people um, who weren't righteous? In Matthew 9 as well, they accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons. So they accused Jesus of connecting himself um, to the satanic. Matthew 12, these godly preachers who loved God's law, Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible. They had a meeting. You know what they plotted at the meeting? To kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of this guy. So you can understand why there were some issues that Jesus had in clashing with them because of their stance. Matthew 16, they tried to trick him. And Jesus said, watch out for them. They've got poisoned leaven. You don't want anything to do with their teaching and what they do because it's poison. And in Luke chapter 7, we get an insight that we know that John the Baptist was at the Jordan River. Thousands upon thousands of people were coming to be baptized. And the common people were coming and submitting to John's baptism. But guess who decided they didn't need baptism? It was the Pharisees. So Luke chapter 7 verse 30 tells us that the Pharisees refused as well um, to be baptized by John the Baptist. There was such a huge self-righteousness connected with them. So Jesus, this instance here in John chapter 3 was a very rare instance. As a matter of fact, there are only four instances in the four Gospels that are positive connected um, to the Pharisees. Three of those are connected with Nicodemus. There are three instances in the Gospel of John where he defends Jesus. He comes to Jesus, we see today. And then in John chapter 19, if you'll remember, Jesus' body is taken down from the cross. Uh, Nicodemus owns all of these spices and this anointing um, stuff. And so he anoints the body of Jesus for his burial. There's one other time in the Gospels, and it's in Luke chapter 13, where some of the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, you've got to get out of here. Herod, King Herod, is trying to kill you. He wants to kill you. So some of the Pharisees came and warned Jesus. So for the most part, Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life was among the common people of the day. And I think the main reason for that is this. Is the self-righteous, actually, even though it may be about God and they, it may be language about God, the self-righteous really, in some ways, have an attitude to tell God what God needs to do, and they almost place themselves in a way that they are kind of in control of God, and there's not a need. But the common people 
who lived broken lives, they knew this, that they were desperate for what Jesus had to offer and what Jesus was teaching. And so all through the Gospels, um, this beauty of Jesus ministering to broken people is there. But we see in the text today that there's this uniqueness um, connected to Nicodemus, that even though he was religious, even though he was connected to a group of people, they were extremely self-righteous. There was something that shattered his life, and he needed to come and have a conversation with Jesus. So um, I'm going to get something over here, and I'm going to illustrate something for us today um, that's important connected um, with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, let me tell you some things about, about his life. So Nicodemus was a man who was rich and he was highly educated. We know that he was rich because um, the amount of spices and anointing things that, they, that he um, was able to anoint Jesus when they took him down from the cross, um, it wasn't something that you ran down to the local 7-Eleven and bought. I mean, this was something that you thought through, you had to save. I mean, you had, I mean it was very, very costly. So one of the things we know about him is that he was educated by being a Pharisee. He was greatly educated. So he built a ladder of his success. And the first rung was his education and his riches. And he would have been a man also. And another rung kind of connected with that was he would have been a man who was very well respected in the community. He was a Pharisee. Um, there were never more than 6,000 Pharisees at a time, and they arose during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, originally when the Pharisees came about, um, their heart was right, and that's the way sometimes things are, is in the beginning, their heart is right. They had recognized, this group of religious leaders had recognized that all through Israel's history, they had failed to follow God, and they had failed to, to walk in God's ways, and so they wanted to help people understand what they needed to do, and so they wrote all of these laws and these rules connected to the, the, the truth of Scripture. So another rung on his life was is that he was a Pharisee. Now, also a Pharisee, they had memorized the first five books of the Bible. That's amazing. Just think about that for a moment, particularly when you come to the book of Leviticus. And think about memorizing that and all those things. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Nicodemus would have been a man who could quote you all, anything of those books. And so a Pharisee, connected, rich, um, just, just an incredible man. But not only that, but you step up on another rung of the ladder. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin were, many of them were Pharisees, but they were like the Supreme Court of Israel where they issued laws and made laws that were applicable not only to the Jews in Israel, but to every Jew upon the whole world. And so here's Nicodemus. He's built this ladder of success. This is himself, and things are good for him. And it's great, but something happens along the way, and it may have happened in your life as well, and this is what it is. We have built our life connected to earthly things and we're standing tall and then all of a sudden something happens jesus shows up and when jesus shows up you take an examination of everything that you've built your life upon and you wonder this does is this really who i am or is there something more than what i have done and everything about nicodemus's life 
was connected to morality. It was connected to the scripture. It was connected to worship. It was connected to um, honoring God and, and helping teach people and making decisions for the Jewish people. And so this man, Nicodemus, he had so much going for him. He, had, he was rich. He was highly educated. He was a Pharisee. He loved the word of God. He knew the word of God. Um, he was a ruler. He had authority and he had power. But one day Jesus came to Jerusalem and he wrecked the court of the Gentiles. And Nicodemus was there. And for several more days at that Passover, Jesus was teaching. Jesus was ministering to people. He was healing the people. And Nicodemus, this religious leader, was watching and taking place and everything that he had built his life upon. And then he looked at Jesus and he wondered, is this the Messiah in our midst? Is God here? And so he couldn't just stand on the ladder anymore. Even though he had climbed up and things were so great, he knew this, that I can either stay here, and sometimes we do this, we climb up the ladder and we look on the other side, and what's on the other side is not really satisfying. It's not going to last. And so Nicodemus decides, I'm climbing down from everything that I've known, everything that I've based my life upon, and I'm going to go talk to that guy named Jesus. So Jesus, so, so Jesus is somewhere. Nicodemus finds out where he is, and he goes and he finds Jesus, and he wants to have a relationship or at least have a, a relationship from the standpoint of having a conversation and getting to know Jesus a little bit more. Let me just briefly touch on the danger of spiritual arrogance that can happen in our lives. Those who get to a place like Nicodemus was, he would have, as a matter of fact, um, the Pharisees in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, um, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, it tells us here's, here's how to, to honor the Lord with the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees decided we're going to help people understand how to fulfill this part of the Ten Commandment. And so they wrote 24 chapters alone about how you honor the Lord with the Sabbath. And what eventually happened over time was, is the written text of the Scripture got overshadowed with all the rules and the laws that the Pharisees had written to explain how people should honor and follow God's laws. And so Nicodemus would have been caught up not only in the written text, been about that, but he would have been caught up in what was called the, this oral Torah, this oral teaching that they had written themselves to help people understand. And so his life was grounded in all of that. And as he took a look at that, he recognized it was not enough. His religiosity, there was an arrogance that was connected there, but he recognized that I need to do something about who I am. And the danger of spiritual arrogance is, first of all, is this, is that sometimes those who, who have this act in charge over God's word instead of God being in charge of God's word. And, 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 and it's a, it's sometimes it's a slippery slope and it's a danger and it slowly happens, but that was there. And I believe those who are spiritually arrogant, they never yield their heart and never yield their mind because they think that they know more. And I know this, and I've seen this to be true even in my own life early on when you can have these periods of time where you can become very spiritually judgmental is that in arrogance, there's never depth. You cannot be deep spiritually if there's an arrogance that's there because arrogance, um, depth comes from humility from recognizing I'm nothing, but when we think, oh, I'm everything, I'm important, then there's this idea that we don't need God. And so humility brings about this depth in our lives. And so here's 
Nicodemus, and he's got all of this stuff going for him. He would have been a bit arrogant as well because he was a Pharisee, but he's, his world is shattered because he's watched Jesus and he's heard Jesus. And so now he recognizes, I can just stay the way I am, and I can stay up here, and I can prop myself up, and I can let these things, or I can get down from this, and I can go see, is there truly something more that this man Jesus has that I need to have? And so Nicodemus comes down, he roams the streets, he finds out where Jesus is, and look at verse 2. So this man came to Jesus by night, And this is what he wanted to say to Jesus. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And these are moments where I think you have had, I have had them, and they are deep conversations at night, early in the morning, whenever the case may be, conversations where we want to know truly who Christ is and what he has for us. And so, um, for most of my faith life, when I've heard verse 2 taught about Nicodemus, people have given Nicodemus a hard time that he came at night. And I think we've, we've done a disservice to Nicodemus. I don't, I don't think he's got, he wants to be a secret disciple. I don't think he's trying to hide anything. Here's what I think happened. Jesus was busy all day long doing ministry. Nicodemus was busy all day doing ministry. So he wanted undivided attention, undivided time. So I think he comes at night because he knows that he can find Jesus and he can ask Jesus when he, what he wants to ask him and they can have a conversation about things that are deep in Nicodemus's heart. And my philosophy is always this, it's better to come at night than to come at all. And I'll say this to you, um, if you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're running behind, or your idiot teenagers are slow, and they won't get up, and they won't get ready, and it's going to cause you to get here at 10.55, come at 10.55, don't stay home, just come. It is better to come, students, I love you, but you are idiots, I, I, I work with y'all from time to time, and I know this to be true, so I can say that, right, Grant Woodward? Okay, yeah, okay. All right. So, listen. When we want these deep life conversations, don't let anything get in the way. Except going to people who can't point us in the right direction. Because sometimes we can we can desire a, a deep life a deep life conversation, but we can go to people that are just going to spout their opinions. We want to go to people that are going to point us through the Scripture and to the revelation of who Jesus is in the Bible. Those are the kind of people that we want to talk to. Nicodemus didn't stay in the realm of the Pharisees and talk about Jesus. He knew, no, i got to go get in His presence. Because in His presence, I can, I can look in His face, I can ask what I want to ask, I can follow up with what I've just asked, and He can communicate more with me. So listen... When we want these deep life conversations, go to the right source, go to the right kind of people, and here's what you will find. Just like Nicodemus found, there's an accessibility that Jesus has opened saying this, you come, I came and died for you, I'm inviting you to come to me 
to be in a relationship with me, to talk to me. You lay down the heavy things on your heart. You lay them down, and let's talk about them. And this is exactly what Nicodemus did. Now, Jesus knew, watch, that for the remaining three years of his ministry with the Pharisees, he was going to clash with them. They were going to plot to kill him. And so now a Pharisee is going to come. Jesus could have gone, uh, go away, dude. I just like the common people. But he, he welcomed an honest seeker to come that night and have a conversation with him about what was important in a relationship with God. And so Jesus was incredibly accessible to everyone. And I like what we see here from Nicodemus, that though he was a man of great spiritual stature, his pride was not so dominant where it kept him away from coming and finding Christ and requiring inquiring something of him and so he had climbed up the ladder and he climbed up the ladder and he had status but he he had looked at the life of Jesus and he thought oh there's something more even from what I have you see his heart and mind wanted more and he knew that Christ had what he longed for so what I want to do is I want to spend the next several moments and I want to talk about what happens on the way coming to salvation now I think Nicodemus comes to faith um, the three instances that we see him in the Gospels, he is kind each time approaching Jesus, which I think is evident that there's been a change of heart in him that he believed in who uh, Jesus truly was. And so he comes to Jesus, and so I'll, let's talk about what happens on the way. For all of us, that's the case. When we, came to, when we eventually came to salvation, there were some things that we began to realize along the way. God was revealing himself to us. And we were coming to an understanding of what, what was necessary and what needed to be done. And, and he was revealing more and more. And, and I believe that what we see from Nicodemus is what happens in our lives as well. And maybe it could happen in your life today. And here's the first thing. Look with me in verse 2. So Nicodemus comes at night. And it says this, this man came to Jesus by night. And this is what he said. He said, Rabbi, we, plural, a group of us, obviously, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Here's the first thing that we must come to know if we're going to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We must know this, that he is the one who alone holds truth. There is not another truth outside of Christ. Jesus, later on, will tell these people, I am the way, I am the truth. And so Nicodemus is coming, and it's clear, hearing Jesus teach, watching Jesus heal, he knows this, you are a teacher come from God. In other words, I know that you hold the truth. It is clear, it is evident to me, and he gives him this great title of respect. He calls him Rabbi. It's kind of like calling somebody a doctorate of theology and calling them doctor. Don't call me doctor because I'm not a doctor. Um, I... Call me master. I'm just kidding, okay? Because <laughs> I have a master of missions. But anyway, don't call me don't call me anything but dope, okay? As a matter of fact, later on, Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, he says this, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and that's God Jesus is speaking about, and you are all brothers. And let me just point this out about spiritual leaders. Be wary of a spiritual leader who has to be called a title. Just watch out. Um, Jesus, if there's one person who ever could have come and called himself a title, it was Jesus. Did he do that? No, he called himself the Son of Man. 
He just didn't make it. As a matter of fact, he did miracles and he told people, to go, don't, go tell, don't go tell anybody about what I've done, which, you know, um, he obviously knew that they were going to go and blab and tell everybody what had happened and took place. And so Nicodemus calls him rabbi, and he says this, I recognize you have come from God. Don't miss that phrase. What is Nicodemus recognizing? That this is God. Now, Nicodemus knew all the Messianic texts of the Old Testament. He climbed the ladder. He knew them. He had all the information. And now he's seeing this, and he's coming to a realization. The one who's come from God is here. Now, did he have all the pieces to fit it all together? No. The 12 who lived with him for three years, they didn't get it until after the resurrection. And then even some of those at the ascension were doubting, it says. That even some there... We're doubting. And so, so Nicodemus doesn't have all of it, but he recognizes this seems to be the Messiah that we have been waiting for. This is the one who is truth. And all of us, when we come to a relationship with Christ, we have to come to that place where we recognize this one named Jesus is the only one who holds truth. He's the only one who holds the way of salvation for me. Secondly, this is what happens on the way to salvation. We come to see that there is no one like Jesus. So the second part of verse 2, he says this, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus says to Jesus, There's nobody like you. There's never been anybody like you. You are the one who's doing things that's clear. You're doing things that only God can do. And so he gives to Jesus this exclusive picture of you are God, you are connected to God. Who can do God things but God? God can, only God can do God things. And so Nicodemus recognized that. He and some of his Pharisees have been talking about that. But watch this. Do you notice what he said? We, we recognize you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do. But did that we come to have a conversation with Jesus? No, only one did. You see, here's a danger that can happen in our lives is we can be around a group of people who can talk about all the right kind of stuff. But if we don't decide to come and investigate and to seek on our own, then we will never find out the depth and the true reality of who Jesus is. Whoever this we is, we didn't come. It was an I who came. It was Nicodemus. And it was Nicodemus because he came and saw it, whose life, whose life was transformed. Nicodemus was religious, but it couldn't save him. From, from his sin. And I believe all the religion in the world that you want to get can never provide salvation. But if you want to know Christ, then you have to come to him. Because the danger is that we have a bunch of information and a bunch of knowledge, but we never come to a place where we have a relationship. And if you want to know Christ as Savior, we come and we recognize he's truth, and he's the only unique one who can rescue me from my sin. So that's two things that happen on the way to salvation. Here's the third thing, and it's a necessity. You can't skip this one. You can't skip it. It's called the new birth. It's called regeneration. It's called being born again. So Nicodemus gives this affirmation to Jesus. Jesus answers him. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, not possible, cannot see the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 3. Jesus uses these words, truly, truly. These are, this comes from a Hebrew word 
that we have in English called amen. You ever heard that word before? When do we always use amen usually? At the very end of what? A prayer. So we pray, oh Lord, blah, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this word amen means so be it, something that's settled, something that's established. So when we pray, what we are saying is, Lord, so be this according to your will, um, according to your way. Um, this is the truth. I'm praying for your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. Notice Jesus here doesn't put the amen at the end. He puts the amen at the beginning. And what he says to Nicodemus is this. He says, Nicodemus, let me establish for you the absolute necessity. It's established. Can't argue it. Truly, truly. I'm saying it twice. It's amen, amen. Settled, settled. And this is what's settled. If you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to be fit for the kingdom of God, you want a relationship with God, you have to be born again. There's not a way around this. You can't, you can't go back to your ladder, Nicodemus, and climb up it and just add me to it. You've got to come to me. You've got to come to me. And if you will come to me, I'm the one who can change you. And the Spirit will bring this new birth in your life. And so Jesus just says, listen, I want to establish for you, Nicodemus, something that must be a settled issue. You have to be born again. And I love what Nicodemus does here in the text in humility to come and seek out more understanding with Jesus. And I love what Jesus does here, which he did all the time, is he is clear with Nicodemus, he's clear with people, and he lays out for them, this is what you have to do. He doesn't hide it. He just says, listen, you got to be born again. This born again means you got to be born from above. You can't be born of earth. This is a spiritual birth. And so you got to be born just as a physical birth ushers us into the physical world. A spiritual birth ushers us in by the Spirit of God to the spiritual world. Now, our first birth only leads to death. But if we get a second birth, a spiritual birth, it leads to life. And if all you ever have is one birth, then you will be eternally separated from God when this life is over. But if you're born physically and then you're born spiritually, then we have the hope and the glory and the promise that is connected that to all those who have trusted in Christ, they have the hope of heaven that we will spend eternity with him. And so he says to Nicodemus, Hey, Nick, settled, settled, settled issue. Here's the thing. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you want to be fit for the kingdom of God, then you have to be born again. And so he tells him, You will not be able to see the kingdom of God. Do you think Nicodemus thought he had been seeing the kingdom of God most of his life? Absolutely. But it was all connected to, to even though it was spiritual things, it was connected to works it was connected to following rituals and following rules and now jesus is saying no it's not about that it's about what i'm about to do and what the spirit can do for you and see the blessings of god come to those who are born again where the spirit comes to reside in somebody's heart at salvation here's the fourth thing and this is a big one so nicodemus in verse 4, look with me there, says, so, so Jesus says you've got to be born again, and you cannot, if you're not, you can't see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus 
thinks through this for a moment, and he says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he's old? What are you talking about? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And on the way to salvation, let me tell you what has to happen in all of our lives. We've got to move from an earthly perspective of things and move to a spiritual perspective of things. Now, let's just be honest here. This is a grown man. This is a highly educated man. Do you really think he, that you, do we really think that he thought that he was going to crawl back into his mom's womb? No, it's not. It's not. He just he's just tripped up, and he's just and, and here's what's doing. Watch this, and and, and you need, we need to see this. Jesus is shattering his Jewish worldview. That it's not ethnicity that brings you into the kingdom of God. It's it's Jesus who does. See, here's what the Jews believed, and this is what they practiced. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship Yahweh, you had to convert to Judaism. You know how you converted to Judaism? You had to be water baptized. And you know what they called it when you converted? They called it being born again. So this was not a foreign concept to Nicodemus. Because Gentiles needed it, but it was a foreign concept from the standpoint that a Jew needed to be born again. Because they thought, we're the people of God. We're the covenant people. We're always in. No, you've got to believe in the Messiah. If you want to be born again, you've got to believe in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. So I believe when we, we read this, Nicodemus is going, what are you talking about? It's shattering his, his Jewish worldview that his works and his rituals and the law and all of that was going to be enough. And Jesus just says, no, it's not your ethnicity. You've got to come to me to be born again. And I believe all of us, we've got to leave our earthly idea of things connected that the things here will allow me to grant me to have a relationship with God. And so sometimes there are people who think, well, if I come to church enough, then I'll go to heaven. Um, If I know enough of the Bible, then that's enough to put enough credits in my account that that's enough that I will go to heaven. Or if I'm water baptized, then that's enough. Or if I serve, or, or if I go on mission trips, and we, we have all these things that are means of us experiencing God in a relationship, they just aren't the way that we get a relationship with Jesus and salvation. He is the only means for salvation. And so there's so many people who think, well, I'll just... I'll just build a good spiritual resume and Jesus will be good with that. And he's not because Isaiah writes that our best day, our best righteous day is like filthy rags to God. So there's not anything good enough that we could do. And that's why I love Christianity. I can't build a ladder for Doak Taylor high enough and with enough glorious things that I could put on there, each rung to say, boy, I did this, I did this. Look, I have, I have earned this. I love this about Christianity, is that I couldn't do anything. You couldn't do anything, but God could. And so Christ came, and he shattered this idea of what we have to do to earn something. And he came, and through grace, he offered something to us through his life, that we can come and be in a relationship with Him. So we've got to move past earthly perspective. 
on the way to salvation. That it's not us, it's not what we do, it's not that. I've got to come to him. And I tell you, in some ways, Nicodemus, uh, look at verse 7 just for a moment. This will be next week. Jesus said to him, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, I just want to marvel for a second. Because I find it incredibly amazing today that I was once dead and now I'm spiritually alive. Once I lived in darkness, now I live in light. And I marvel at that because, because I, the older I get, the more I realize the reality of, of, of what's been given to me because of Christ. And it causes me to just go, wow, salvation is amazing what has been done for us. And so we've got to move past a earthly perspective on the way to salvation. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You're counting on a bunch of earthly stuff, even though it's spiritual. It's stuff that you've done here. But heaven has come. I have come. And I have come to make a way through my body and through my blood to bring you into a relationship. Here's the last thing that happens on the way to salvation. Look at five. So Jesus answers back to him. Truly, truly, so be it. Settled issue. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So who brings us into the kingdom of God? The Holy Spirit. You see that? Faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration. There's also a picture here, and don't misunderstand this because this has been misinterpreted um, throughout church history to say that water baptism grants salvation. There's not a work of God, or excuse me, there's not a work of man that man does that brings salvation. It is only Jesus. So when we baptize... Somebody is holding somebody, somebody is putting somebody under the water, somebody is raising somebody up out of the water. Physical elements do not bring salvation other than the physical life and blood and body of Jesus is the only way that we are brought into a relationship with him. So it's not water, baptism saves us, but water, baptism, by the way, if I step on your toes, I'm just going to step on them and you can get over it. Mark Verlander, you can email him this week. Mark at lifepointfellowship.org, okay? Listen, baptism, water baptism, is really important. Now, let me just deal with this before I talk about that. The Holy Spirit, when we come into salvation, does the work of raising us to new life. Let me give you a couple passages. Titus 3, 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word when, when you came to salvation. He writes, when you received the word of Jesus in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. So at salvation, the Thessalonians received Jesus uh, and re- received the Spirit at salvation, and they received the Spirit with joy, even though it was in much affliction. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we enter the kingdom of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. Trusting in what Christ did 
And at salvation, the Spirit comes to reside inside of us. Now, I want to talk about water baptism for a moment. And I want to give an illustration from my life. So my grandfather was a Baptist pastor. And he was, if y'all remember back, pastors in the 50s, 60s, they um, pretty <laughs> hellfire and brimstone, passionate, a lot of yelling. And, and uh, my grandfather's dad, although he had, he had the tender heart, he wasn't, he wasn't like, like crazy, crazy, that kind of stuff. But, you know, that, that was just the way it was back, back then. And I remember as a kid, I would go to Amarillo for two weeks and I'd have to go to church all the time, which, you know, when I was 10, I thought that was the, the worst, worst thing that could ever happen to me in my life. And so I spent two weeks going to church with my grandfather and VBS and just I had a poor life back then during those days. Well, one Sunday night in Amarillo, my grandfather is the pastor of St. Jacinto Baptist Church there, that I walked the aisle, and I came up to my grandfather standing up front, and he said, uh, I want to be baptized, was my words, I think, and, and so they sat down and talked with me, and, and so I had kind of grown up in and around church, and if you've done that, you know what you learn? You learn the language, which sometimes can be dangerous, even though it's glorious, we can use the language, and it can trick us, and so, um, so I was baptized, and that was awesome. I was probably 10. Well, my grandparents were going to take a Holy Land tour to Israel and Greece and Rome and look at all the sites of all that, and, and they said, hey, do you want to come along? And so I was 12 at the time. I'd finished my sixth grade year. I was like, yeah, let's, I'll, I'll go. So that summer, I went on a Holy Land tour. So we're in Israel, and we go to the Jordan River where they believe John the Baptist was out there and where Jesus was baptized. It's a bunch of, sorry, no offense to anybody in the room. I was 12. I was with a bunch of senior adults, probably around my age now, you know. But anyway, they were so old back then. But anyway, because um, I'm not old at all. And so they thought it would be cool. Somebody said, oh, we should baptize somebody here in the Jordan River. Well, guess who got volunteered for that? You think, you think the senior adults got volunteered to go get in their clothes and get wet? Well, I did, and so... So we stepped into the Jordan River, and my grandfather, I, I've been baptized in the Jordan River, this person right here, put under the water, raised up, all the right words said. Well, problem was, with my first two baptisms, I hadn't come to Jesus yet. But I'd been wet, and I'd done what the church said to do, I'd followed the ordinance, I'd done all of it. So I came to Christ at the end of my junior year, 17. And then I went to college, and I'm a youth minister. I'm 19 years old. That church, I don't know what that church was thinking. I was 19 years old, and they made me their youth minister in Amarillo. Back in the day, those of you who've been around church for a while, you remember when they used to have revival services, churches did? You know, week long, and, you know, and, yeah, and, you know, preacher would come, and he'd yell from Sunday morning to Friday, and you'd have these revival services, and, you know, trying to scare people into heaven, and, all that. Well, Thursday night of that revival service at the church I was the youth minister of, I was on staff getting paid for my job. I recognized that my baptism wasn't in the right order. That I'd been baptized before salvation, but you're supposed to be baptized with water after salvation. And I'm grabbing the pews and I'm shaking like this. Because God in the invitation is saying, you need to get your baptism right. And I'm telling God, because I'm spiritually righteous at 19, no, I don't. I don't. I've already been baptized. No, you need to get this right. And so I'm gripping, shaking, 
And finally, I give in. And I walk down front to my pastor and said, I got to tell you something. Um, and this is going to sound weird to you. But uh, I've been baptized twice before salvation, but I haven't been baptized with water after my salvation. And I think I need to get that right. And he's like, yeah, you do. So that was a Thursday. That Sunday at our church, in front of all the church, in front of all the students that I was the student minister over, I got my baptism right. Now, why do I tell that story? I tell that story because of this. Because baptism is really important. Water baptism is really important to God. It's an identity marker of our faith. We're going to read tomorrow morning, John 4. You know what John 4 is going to tell us? The first two verses that the disciples of Jesus baptized more people than John the Baptist was baptizing. You know what that tells us? Jesus affirms water baptism. It's important. Jesus himself was water baptized. So if that's not true of you, guess what? Next week we can put this thing right over here. We can fill it up with water. We have a water heater now. (laughs) You don't have to go outside anymore, and we can baptize you next Sunday morning. So maybe the application of this text today for you is just that. You know what? Maybe you're like me. Your baptism is all, maybe you were sprinkled as a kid, but you came to Christ at 30, and you've never been water baptized to identify you of what happened in salvation, and you ought to get that right. Now, this church doesn't send any numbers to an association to say, look how awesome we were. We're not going to send our numbers of how many people we baptized, what I want to do is I just want to call you to be biblical and to do what's right according to the Scripture. That's important. So you can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to Mark afterwards. We'd love to do that. I want to close with this. Huge collision in Nicodemus' life. Again, let's look at this. He had built a life of great stature. Just great stature. Then he took a look at Jesus and went, gosh, what I've built, who I am, is nothing compared to him. And so I'm not staying up here. This this is not what I'm going to do. I'm coming down, and I'm going to walk the streets, and I'm going to find where that guy is, that teacher, that miracle worker, and I'm going to go talk to him. And now Jesus has told him, you've got to be born again. And I believe that Nicodemus believed that. And I believe his life was changed because I believe with all the controversy of the last weekend and week and weekend of Jesus' life, for him to be there as the body of Jesus, as the nails were pulled out of his hands and his feet and the body of Jesus was laid down, Nicodemus, this guy, walked with Joseph of Arimathea in front of everybody, Pharisees, his fellow Pharisees and everybody, and walked all the way to the tomb and anointed the body of Jesus. And here's what I think happened in Nicodemus' life. So let me tell you a story from me. December the 13th, 2019, I had gone into Lowe's and they had Christmas lights on sale, danger. We needed some more blue ones. We needed some more blue ones on this tree. It's funny how we can convince ourselves of things. I knew my wife would be happy So I bought some more blue lights for a tree because we didn't have enough blue lights on this tree. So I got my ladder out, and I climbed up it. 
And I'm wrapping lights around the limbs, connecting those things. Stepped up. You know this thing right here? You know what every letter says right here? Don't stand there. What do those ladder people know? They don't know anything. So I had done that. I had gone all the way up, and I'd stepped. I'm not doing it today, okay? So, but I'd gone all up there, and I'm high up in the tree. Well, all of a sudden, that ladder fell over. And the only thing I can do is this. And I got a limb, and I got lights in my hands, and I'm not sure how far it is, five feet off the ground, you know, probably, yeah, five feet off the ground. And I'm up there holding, and I'm sliding down the limb, and my arms are just being cut up. I'm just sliding down this limb. And I can't see where the ladder fell. And so I'm clinging for dear life, Good motivation, had good motivation. This was My wife was going to walk outside in a minute, and she's going to be happy. New or blue lights. So I have all this great motivation, and I'm just sliding down, and it's painful, and I don't know where it is, and I can't, I can't find it. My phone is in my pocket playing Christmas music. Well, I, I know these are pretty incredible guns right here, but I wasn't going to be able to do this and find my phone and you know, open it up, and hey, I'm hanging from a tree out here. Can somebody come rescue me? Nobody on my kids are, oh, we, we live in a cul-de-sac, and there's like 50,000 kids who live in our cul-de-sac. And they're out all the time, but nobody's out there as I'm hanging from the tree. And so I can't call anybody. I can't do anything, and I'm just hanging on for dear life, and then I have to realize this. Well, I can't stay here. I'm just going to have to let go. And I'm going to have to trust that when I land, it's going to be okay. So I do that. So I just let go, and I land, and I landed good. And I kind of wanted to do that uh, gymnastics thing. (laughs) I didn't, but I thought about it. Listen, church, can I tell you what salvation looks like? It looks like that. Clinging clinging to my way it's man's way i'm clinging to something earth and it's cutting me it's not good for me and what do i need to do i need to get on solid ground and so how do you get on solid ground you just got to let go and you got to fall and when you fall spiritually you know you know where you fall you fall into the hand of god and it's the safest place in the world to be and i just want to plead with us today Have you fallen into the hand of God in salvation? Because you can try this, and you'll get to the other side and look on the other side, and it's empty. Or you can come down and say, it's not my earthly ways. i got to go to the spiritual man who died for me and invites me to come to a relationship with him. So if this is you today, just clinging, just do this. Just let your soul go. Trust in him and you'll fall into his hands. He's the God who saves. He's the God who regenerates. All right, let's pray.